Greetings, listeners. It's been a minute since I've sailed on the high seas, but I've managed to convince a great group of guests to set sail with me once again on the high seas. So guess who's coming to dinner again? This is Michael Cave, your Capitan, El Capitan, and I've got a distinguished lineup here today. Got Joe Panora. I'll let him introduce himself in a second. Terry Bennett, Paul Benedetto, and Dale Jablonski. And it's too bad I wasn't recording the conversation beforehand because we got to hear Paul bitch about technology. But uh, welcome aboard, everybody. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's going to be, as usual, a fun time virtually. So, uh, Joe, what do you have to say for us, my sir? Well, I'll give you a little background. Um, Joe Penor did 35 years in the state of California, worked for five different departments. Last 14 and a half years, um, I was the IT director at the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, um, was appointed by two governors, Governor Arnold and Governor Brown, retired about eight and a half years ago, had my own independent consulting firm, and I just it's a privilege to still be connected to the IT community, so having fun. Hey, Joe, wait, wait, Joe, say Schwarzenegger, because I know you can't say it, because that's why you said Governor Arnold. <laughs> uh, all right, pizza man, okay. No. <laughs> oh, we, we violated the code. We didn't do ladies first, but Terry, no offense, but you're up. Okay. Hey, I'm Terry Bennett. Um, I have worked actually for 37 years for state of California, um, various departments, probably majority of my time was at um, CDCR, SCO, and then PERS. And when I retired from PERS, I was the their CIO. Um, after I left, I went to work in the private sector, um, joined Accenture, led their North America pension practice for about four and a half years. Um, when I got tired of being on the road, I joined the local team, the Sacramento team, and uh, led business development and sales for, for that, for the state of California. And then when I decided I really didn't want to work full-time anymore, I left Accenture and joined Pinnacle Advocacy. And that was in like March of, or May of 21. So just coming up on two years. Fantastic. Thanks for sailing. Really happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Paul, pizza man. Um, I worked at I worked at Lampost for five years, Pizza Hut for three, <laughs> Giovanni's for four and a half. Oh, but oh, I was a civil servant for about thirty, probably thirty-one years. I worked at nine or ten different departments. Um, I, I guess you could say I didn't know how to keep a job that long. Um, I was lucky. I worked for Governor. I was appointed by Governor Arnold as well as Governor Brown. And um, I had a lot of fun, had a great career and met some great people and worked with some great people. So I've been doing what Joe's been doing about a year longer. Um, and I was the idiot that talked him into doing this. So you could blame me, everybody. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been fun. Right on, right on. Dale Jablonski, how are you, sir? Very good. Glad to be here. Thank you for hosting this, Michael. Oh, my um, yeah, my I had a 30 year career with the state of California, uh, 26 or and a half, 27 with uh, EDD. And then the last three were with uh, CalPERS. I followed Terry up over there. Um, since then, it's been 10 years since I retired. Um, 
I spent a couple, maybe a year and a half with uh, performance technology partners, then seven and a half years with um, KPMG, and now another year with uh, visionary integration professionals. And, and my consistent role as a consultant in, in those 10 years has been primarily CIO advisory and, and IT transformation is kind of my specialty. And, and it's something that I even did back as a as a state of California, you know, IT leader was, I, I really believe that transformation was called for and necessary and, and try to continue that uh, as, as a consultant. Awesome. Well, again, thank you all so much for being here. It was a real riot the last time you all were poking fun at each other. I just sat back and I think the boat drove itself in the deep waters, but I think we're going to have another stimulating conversation tonight, this evening. Uh, I know that you all probably have some questions of me, but let me start with a couple of uh, questions for you. I just heard a common theme between you all that you didn't just work one place. You didn't play for one team like uh, some of these folks did in the NBA or in the NFL. You, you spread it around. You spread the love around. But here's my question for you. I consider you all as uh, people that have retired from state of California civil service Hall of Famers, for lack of a better word. So if you're going into the Hall of Fame and you had to pick a team or a department, here's my question for each of you. Which department are you going in as and why? Joe, bring us home on this one. Loaded question. Well, I, I think the last time that this ship sunk, I don't know if it fell off. And uh, Dell Dell has some a real a really beautiful backyard, man. Um, that looks really cool. Um, well, you don't like my I, backyard? I'm probably, I'm, I'm probably biased. Um, the two departments I worked at that I had the most fun in my younger career was franchise tax board. Um, but I wasn't a, a C executive at that point. I was just middle middle management. So I'm probably going to have to choose the last 14 years at at corrections and. Um, and the reason why is, is that you kind of drink the juice a little bit on the mission about making California safer. And you really kind of buy into that and you believe you're making a difference and you believe when the inmates you know, get out and they come back and they rehab that they are gonna to come to a community near you. And so you really wanna make sure that you know, the, the technology and the underlying support systems in place are really giving them a chance to succeed. And um, at corrections, good or bad or indifferent, it was at the height when I was there when we had 170,000 inmates, 90,000 um, on parole, and we were getting sued all over the place. It was like a shotgun, you know, lawsuits coming everywhere, friendly fire. Um, out of that came a lot of um, um, money on the remediation plans and through the lawsuits to fix these things. And a lot of that money was, um, tied to technology. So I had the opportunity to, you know, what Dell talked about, a modernization transformation to really move corrections, you know, out of the, you know, 1920th century into the 21st century and create a really um, good foundation for both, you know, uh, people who followed me as far as Russ Nichols and Kirsten Montgomery to now even take it to different levels. So um, I would choose corrections over again. Sounds good. All right, that makes sense to me. Terry, I'm, I'm very curious about your, who you're going in as. 
You know, I actually, I'm a little torn. I, I love PERS <clears throat> and I love pensions and because they have money, right? And so <laughs> I, I was always easy to get the funds to do the things I wanted to do. And I, you know, and once I left state service, um, I went on to have, you know, pursue pensions as my consulting career. Um, but I think the place I had the most fun, like Joe, was corrections. And I spent 12 years there. And I was there at the beginning of automation um, at the... On the, when the big boom for construction, prison construction was underway, and I actually led the initial efforts to automate health, which was fairly interesting. Um, but I think corrections was always just this, this bed of opportunity. I mean, data, you had data everywhere. We used to, we figured out how to look at um, canteen reports where the, they bought their meals and, and bought their little sundries and stuff and could use those reports once we automated canteen, use those reports to predict riots because the inmates always knew before the guards when something was coming down. And so you'd see a spike in top ramen and, <laughs> and different sales because <laughs> they knew they were going to be in lockdown, right? Wow. Um, but it was very, it, to me, it was just always very interesting. And, you know, taking that data and helping the guards understand how to use that to run their businesses more effectively. Um, and when we first started automation, there was so much resistance because they had inmates to do all the, the logging and entry, Right. And so there was, they were resistant to having to type on anything or do any entry themselves. They thought it was beneath them. But once some of them started realizing, um, there were a few that were real champions. But anyway, I, I had a great time there. Um, when I got paroled <laughs> and went out of outside of corrections, I looked back and kind of realized how institutionalized I had become, right? But, um, but actually, I think that was my favorite place to work. Hey, Mike, I'd like to add on to what Terry said. The other thing, too, about corrections, um, when you have an opportunity to do something, um, everything is of significant um, magnitude and dollars behind that. So as yeah. a CIO and CTOs and your staff underneath you, they really have a chance to take on some very large efforts um, with technology behind it and from a transformation standpoint, where a lot of the smaller departments Maybe you're doing a $500 million job at corrections, you're doing a $400 million opportunity effort. So right. it's just the size and magnitude really makes it challenging and rewarding if you're successful. Yeah, I just, just to add on, one of the things I did when I was there was I went out in the business, in the program area for a while, and they, they all, every institution used to do their own buying, right? And you could go to institution A, and it looked like they had the Starbucks, you know, selection of coffees, and you could go to other ones that had nothing. And they inmates would file claims because, you know, they couldn't buy, they'd get transferred and they couldn't buy Pepsi or Pepsi was more expensive or they really wanted Coke. So one of the things I did was go out and I got us, I got permission to do our own commodity contracts and started pooling and doing single contracts. And so it was like, I went out and you got, to, the institutions got to pick a set of sodas. <clears throat> So it's the Pepsi line or it's the Coke line, but you only get one and we're doing it across all institutions. We did that with, we also did a similar buy with razors, which that was very interesting to try and procure because you couldn't have anything that could be made into a shiv, right? And, right. Uh, and so, I mean, it was just, that was fun stuff. And it really, it really changed the way it was all materials management related and it changed the way they did all their buying. So there were just opportunities all over the place. Well, with the first two people that have gone with this loaded question, I think it's so fascinating that you've used the word fun, which is Paul's favorite <laughs> word to respond to people on LinkedIn with, have fun. You both have used that a lot, which I think is fascinating. And 
The other thing I think is fascinating is, Joe, you talked about you weren't even a C-level executive yet. And I'm thinking, well, did the misery and pain start once you become a C-level executive? Or do you have fun before that? And then it's just like, oh, crap. You know, I don't know. I, I just think that's fascinating. But Mr. Benedetto, Mr. Have Fun, Mr. Pizza Guy. What do you uh, have OSI. For? OSI. OSI. And I, I don't even have to think twice. When Joe's talking about $400 million projects, I signed a PO for a billion dollars to Accenture to do saws. So those are huge numbers. And when you work for an agency that has a, basically a $200 billion with all funding plus, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's a different world and health was a different world. And I, I learned more from, I, first of all, I loved working for Carlos and that was for about a year. But my probably my true mentor was Joe Munzo. Oh, and yeah. Joe, yeah, Joe just took me by basically by the hand, sometimes by the back of the hairs on my neck. And he showed me how to do things. The conversations with the legislative staffers, the conversations with the governor's office, how to weave in what you want to have happen and what you don't want to have happen, how to run an organization, what's important. And what's not important. And it didn't matter what, it, what kind of administration it was. These were just normal things that you do that if you don't have a really good mentor, kind of slip under the table. And Carlos taught me about relationships. He said, Paul, you got to get out there and get to know people. And I would always tell him, well, I know, I know everybody. He said, no, you know people, but you don't have relationships with people. You got to be able to have relationships with people to get things done. So for me, by far, it was OSI. CTA was fun, but when you're a part of a governor's cabinet, it, it gets a little dicey. And Mike, you, you, asked, you, asked about, you asked about how things, how these jobs get ugly. The higher you go, the uglier they get. You have, and sometimes you have less authority oh, yeah. to get things done because everything you're doing has to go up. Just that extra chain to the governor. Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk to, um, I remember governor Brown and he had just beat the brakes off of Meg Whitman and Meg wanted to come in and talk about, about her, um, HP. And I believe the governor told Carlos, I already beat her <laughs> or I already beat her. I don't want to talk to her. You go talk to her. Wow. And so it was, it was stuff like that, that we were always getting involved with, or when the governor decided that, iPads and iPhones were no good. I remember getting a call from this guy named Jablonski. I think you guys know him, Dale, saying, what the fuck is he doing? That's, we should be getting rid of landlines. We should keep our technology. You know, and having those political conversations were not fun. But OSI was a blast. And the people I got to meet at OSI and the friends I made at OSI and the work we did at OSI is extremely meaningful. And so, like... Like Joe and Terry, man, you go to a place, you find meaning there. And if you're able to get a couple things done, if you're able to have fun in the process and meet great people, that, that's, that's what it's all about. Right on. I agree. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for speaking from the heart on that. I can see why OSI was your top pick to go into the Hall of Fame with. Dale, what is your answer? I, I would have to choose EDD. Um, you know, I spent 26 years there. I, I grew up there and, and CalPERS was a great place and they embraced me 
faster than I ever expected. And, and, um, I, I was, I was pleasantly surprised that the amount of authority they gave me, I think Terry had already arranged for a ton of authority and I didn't have that same level at, at EDD, but, um, but just that family, uh, environment that I had developed over my 26 years there where I you know knew everybody and we all hung out together that was that was that made it extremely special and um you know there's there's always a trade-off in life you know when when you when you're at the lower levels you don't have all this responsibility and this burden of of you know pushing that change rock up the hill but you you have to deal with a lot of I hate to say the word idiots, you know, and, and, um, and what made me go into supervision in the first place is I couldn't stand some of the people that supervised me. They just, you know, they just did not make good decisions at all. And they were nice people. Don't get me wrong, but they, their decision-making capabilities was, was the worst on the planet. And so that's what kind of propelled me. And that's what I used to pro try to propel a lot of my peers who were hesitant about ever going into leadership, you know, is, this is the only way you can affect change, you know, is by becoming a leader. And, and I, I will take that trade off every time. In other words, yeah, there's responsibility. Yeah. There's burden and yeah, you lose sleep, but man, you're affecting change and you're making bigger changes like Paul, Joe and um, Terry all alluded to is you're, you're dealing with some huge, huge shifts in, in people's, you know, thinking and, and service delivery and a lot of things. And, and that's important to me. That's more important than anything is, is affecting that change because Lord knows, you know, state of California needs it. You know, we were we used to brag about how we were the sixth largest economy. And then we bragged how we were the fifth largest economy. Now in the last, you know, quarter, they're the fourth largest economy in the world. And, you know, Texas and Florida can brag all they want about what they do, but they're, you know, they don't even register on the Richter scale as far as, you know, global rankings. And so, you know, California is it. And, um, and we, and with that comes, you know, a moral and, and just fundamental, you know, citizen responsibility that that we make it worthy of that size and stature. And, and there's a lot of work to do in order to, to make California fit that, you know, world leading model. And, and that's what this should all be about. This, you know, and, and I would have to choose, you know, EDD and, and, and I would just, you know, the EDD still has a long way to go. And, and it's, you know, you can certainly tell by, by some of the stuff you read about that, that they have a long way to go. So I would still like to go back there and help them at some point. All right. Well, thank you all for sharing. I mean, in, in a way, you told us who you're going in as, as far as uh, your, your favorite team. It totally makes sense. You've mapped that to that favorite department. I, I'm not going to ask you all how you want your bust, your Hall of Fame bust rendered if you want the younger version of yourself. Like if Paul turns off his camera, we've got this ridiculously young picture of him <laughs> versus now. So I'm just going to assume that, you know, you all are in your silver years. So you're going to want your bust to reflect who you are today, not who you were when you were leading said organization you're going into the Hall of Fame as. But thank you all for sharing that. It looks like our table is finally ready. And before we uh, take your orders for what you're going to have to eat and drink. And then this jukebox thing, because before Dale showed up, we were talking about some music. So we're going to talk about music again tonight. Uh, I had an icebreaker question for you all. I want you to round robin popcorn through this. Uh, so what scene in a movie always gives each of you goosebumps every time you watch it? Uh, let's popcorn to Terry first. You know what? 
go past me. I got to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Dale. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. All right, Joe. There we go. All right. I, I like the scene in Pulp Fiction with John Travolta and um, God, is it, it? I can't remember Uba, her name. Uba Thurman. Yeah. And they're dancing the, the dance and they're on this on the stage dancing and Travolta's doing this and she's doing that. And I don't know. It's a great movie. Right on, man. All right. It looks like Paul has some thoughts ready for us. So I have two thoughts. I have two different things. I have um, Godfather when Pacino kisses Fredo and says, I know it was you. And you knew that dude was dead at the end of the movie. You just knew it was done. And then Bruce Willis and what, what when he was with Sybil Shepherd. And this is, this is, yeah, Moonlight. So this is going to be kind of crass, but they're in a bar fight and he gets punched and he, and he goes underneath the table and he looks up, he goes, just my luck. She's wearing underwear. <laughs> and I started busting up. I thought that was about the funniest damn thing I've heard on TV. And I was like in the eighties and I thought, oh man, this is just too damn hilarious. Yeah. So those were, but the, the Godfather thing with Fredo and him giving Fredo a kiss when they're in Cuba saying, I knew it was you, Fredo. And then basically knowing that that was, that's going to be the end for him. Oh yeah, definitely. I remember the look on Fredo's face too. So, uh, Godfather, everybody's watched that. Everybody's got to appreciate it. Glad you uh, offered that one up. And thanks for offering up too, Paul. You just, you do what you want, don't you? <laughs> he was never good at following directions and still isn't. I don't do details, damn it. Two is five, could be two, it could be 12. Who knows? Awesome. Terry, did you have something? Well, I, I think it's still my original thought, and it was that special scene in When Harry Meets Sally. <laughs> you going to act it out for us? <laughs> no, no, but I actually I did have I did eat lunch in that in that deli at that table and I just was just, you know, it's just a funny scene. Like, oh, it's a great it's a great scene. I'll okay. have what she's having. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. This is awesome. All right. So, uh, Dale, what do you have for us? I think I have something, one of my favorite movies is probably near and dear to um, Terry and Joe is uh, in Shawshank Redemption uh, towards the end where he's in the yard and, and, and he's voicing too much optimism and, and the Morgan Freeman character says, you can't be optimistic, you're in prison. And his famous line was, get busy living or get busy dying. And to me, that just resonated with me, you know, and, and, and then when you see how the movie ends, you know, it, it kind of all makes sense. So yep. um, I just thought that was a pivotal point in, in a very good movie. Hmm. Hey, Dale, right behind you, I see a weed. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and this picture's a year old. Those weeds are gone now. <laughs> I thought you were going to see that squirrel that's running past him. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Mm. <laughs> all right so I'm, I'm gonna get in on this and uh anytime this movie comes on it doesn't matter what i have planned for the day it turns into a veg day for me because uh that movie taken where you had uh liam nielsen brian mm -hmm. mills and when he picked up that phone and he told that guy that kidnapped his daughter the bone chilling <laughs> quote i'm gonna read to you all it just gives me goosebumps it's, and i'm gonna 
show you in the voice that he had. So it's like, uh, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go, that'll be the end of it. If not, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. <laughs> so, Michael, yeah. you, you, you said a line, not a paragraph. Well, <laughs> details, details, details. I know. Finally, I get to the detail part. But did it make the hairs on the back of your neck if you still have any stand up? Yeah. I thought you wanted a song too. Not a line. So, Michael, real quick, you know, in the beginning, you talked about, you know, when I said something about, you know, middle management, you know, and you said that was interesting. I guess my, my comment around that, maybe they can chime in too. I always tell people, do you want to be the head coach or do you want to be the assistant coach? Uh -huh. and, and obviously, even as CIOs, you report to somebody. You're never really the head, head person in charge, but you're, right. you're, you are over your IT division. And to me, um, that's where I think the job gets the, the most rewarding and most challenging and most fun is when you're able to execute your game plan and see the results and, and be in charge and then help develop the staff underneath you. So that's why, to me, when you get to that level, you know, it, it's, a, it's a game changer. So, so exactly. Joe and Terry, Joe Terry Dale, because I was never a CIO. But there's a reason for that. But go ahead. <laughs> there is. There's like there's details, details. details, um, details. But I do. But I do have. I do have a question for you guys because I hear this often. I always thought that that the CIO job was probably the hardest job in any department, except for maybe a chief deputy director. But I always thought the CIO job was the hardest because of your budget situation, your people, the expectations. And the higher you go up, the harder it gets. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. Could you guys talk about that a little bit? Because I've always thought that was, to me, that was always the thing that a lot of people that want to be CIOs or that want to be, go up, they don't understand how hard it is to be a CIO. And especially in today's world. And I know it was hard for you guys back, back in the day because we were going through recessions and we had a lot of different things going on. Yeah, you know, Paul, I'll start. I, I think that the what I see today are a lot of CTOs in CIO roles. Um, a lot of people who are very technology savvy and technology focused, whereas a CIO should be very strategic. The CIO has to has to understand the business and help the business folks understand how technology can help them and kind of steer them in the right direction. Um, I always loved the role because I, I felt like it was... Um, I was able to lead a lot of change and transformation, which are things I love. And, and, it, was, and it was the people aspect of it. You know, the, the technology is a science. It should have predictable results, but change is, a, um, is a, an art, right? The human nature, everybody responds to things differently. And, you know, the people, sometimes the people you think who would adapt most easily are the ones who are the most yeah. resistant. But yeah. anyway, I think the CI role, I think is very challenging. Um, but it's what you make it. And so, you know, it's like you can hide down in the technology ranks or you can come out and really be a business leader 
and sit at the table with the rest of the execs and, you know, and help steer that ship. Yeah. Right. And, uh, Terry, and what was, Terry, what was the hardest decision you had to make? Sorry, Michael, I'm going to ask a couple questions here. Hey, go for it, man. Drive the boat. <clears throat> um, you know, I think the hardest decision was, um, who to fire. <laughs> Maybe that was the easiest decision, but I mean, it, you know, I mean, you had to, yeah. It, it's managing your organization and the team that that supports you, right? Yeah. And I always felt like I was pretty good at picking people who complemented my skills because I knew I was not the smartest one at the helm. And so I surrounded myself with people who were smarter and had different skill sets. Um, and but sometimes, you know, I ran into people who worked against me, and you can't have that in your organization, right? No, definitely. And so those are always painful decisions. Dale, how about you? Same two questions. Well, um, I agree that, you know, it, it can be a hard leadership can be hard if if you don't have an agenda, you know, you have to have an agenda. And and I believe, you know, when when I took over for Terry, there was a huge agenda. It's called get this transformational project, you know, across the finish line. But she had a lot of stuff in her strategic plan that was quite remarkable and, and, a, and a much more of a pleasant surprise to me. Uh, when I got there, because all I was focused on was this, you know, $680 million project. And she had a lot of other things on her agenda that was that was state of the art. Joe had a huge agenda at CDCR because, again, he was faced with, you know, yeah. billions of dollars in projects that all had to be finished and and, and were all transformational, you know. Uh, and so so I think that's why we found reward. And the same thing at um, at EDD, I had a huge agenda. And, and, and that's where the reward comes in, because people start to realize that you're not in, you're not stuck in groundhog day which is another favorite movie of mine where you know nothing's changing and and nobody has any hope and you know and and so you know i think that's what makes leadership so cool is is you can craft that thing and that's that's the cio's job and and it's and like terry says you have to you know get the business people to agree that this is a common agenda where you're going to transform all of the services in a department or or a significant number of them um, it's real easy to get everyone to agree these days that every department is not where they need to be. That that should take about a day, if not an hour. That that there's 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 room for improvement, you know. And once you get that agreement, then you know what is that agenda that gets you, you know, to where you need to go. Uh, shouldn't be that difficult of a conversation. I'm I'm kind of surprised at some of these. CTOs that are, you know, trying to be CIOs at, at their lack of agenda. And, and I think that's their biggest, you know, impetus that they got to go out and fulfill is, is to establish a, a strategic direction, you know, and, and, and not just a five-year look, but what is the year-by-year -year way you're going to get there? Right. You know, that's, that's where the agenda comes in. So you got to have the long-term strategy and you got to have the yearly uh, tactical projects that execute and get you closer to where you need to be. So do you guys think, um, and Joe, I'll ask you this question. Do you think that the people trying, the people that want to become CIOs don't really understand what the CIO job's about? And then they get there and they can't, they're, they're not as successful as they thought they might be, putting it nicely? Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's hard. It, I think it's hard to tell. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people want to move up because they want to make more money not necessarily because that's really the job you know they want to do or they're yeah. you know ready to move up but you know the, 
opportunities there. Um, the CIO position, I think, is constantly evolving and changing. If you look at when we were CIOs and people prior to us and, and today's, today's world, it's much more different, um, more than ever, about establishing relationships on, on the program side, on the business side where a long time ago wasn't necessarily, you know, that wasn't the, the, the predominant thing that was happening. Um, to me, I, I think there's a couple of things, uh, you know, you've seen both CTOs and ISOs being promoted to the CIO position. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me a little bit. And I'm not saying anybody who's been promoted recently doesn't deserve the position, but, you know, you're moving into technical people, moving into a more strategic, uh, visionary type of, position. And I'm not sure, you know, that's the, the best way to go, you know, as far as the new CIO role. Um, CIOs really need to be, you know, entrepreneurs need to kind of run their shop like they're running a business and be self-driven. I'm not sure we're seeing that right now as much as we used to. Part of that could be, you know, that people just aren't seasoned and really haven't been through the baptism yet where they come out standing and they have the experience behind them that, you know, and maybe initially because they're a little green, they're afraid to take a little risk and, and kind of uh, move things forward with their agenda. So um, I, th I think there's some coaching and mentoring and there's opportunities for people like us and other people we know who retired from the state to come back in and, and coach and mentor and help some of these CIOs, you know, they get to the point where they're, they're more seasoned. Um, the other thing too is, you know, um, back to those program relationships you know the, the problem is you know if you haven't established a relationship and then there comes a time when you need one it's too late and so um and you get things through you know the relationships both upwards down and sideways as well so i think there's just there i mean god bless them i mean i'm glad they're willing to jump into the arena and take the risk i just think there's a little bit more seasoning more experience that is needed more coaching or mentoring and hopefully at some point they'll be more self-driven and kind of you know look at it as entrepreneurs running their own business okay powerful stuff here soaking it up and we haven't even had the food yet but this is very nourishing <laughs> seriously <laughs> So, so, so let me ask you guys another question. What was your hardest when you guys, when you guys look back on your career and we, we have with the four of us about 130 something years of state service. Um, what's the hardest decision you had to make? And I don't mean about firing people. Cause I, I, unfortunately I had to do my fair share of that and that's not fun, but what was the hardest decision you guys had to make? Like, let's say a no or a go or no go decision or a on a project that was of extreme importance to the state or anything you had to do maybe with your executive body or i mean no. does that does that yeah, make any i'd, I'd like that, to is that, that i think what we faced a lot of times in our career was a choice between two basic philosophies and one of the philosophies was you know what it, the decision that everyone took automatically was don't make waves kind of decisions. You know, the outcome means don't make waves. You're asking for trouble versus do the right thing. And a lot of times do the right thing was always going to be the hardest path forward. It was going to be 10 times harder than don't make waves. And, and, and to me, 
I always made that decision, you know, um, I wanted to make waves. I wanted to rock the boat and, and I wanted to do the right thing and, and never did it ever come back and haunt me. It, I, it certainly was 10 times more work and I had to CYA, you know, a lot during that, during that implementation. But, um, it, I think it, what separates the, the pretenders from the real leadership category so and i know that doesn't give you a specific decision paul because there was a hundred of them yeah they were yeah. always you know that i remember well you you and i were in tahoe one time dale and it was right before the go live the no or the go or no go decision for calpers you guys were you guys were about ready to say are we going to do this or not and i remember you and i i i think we were probably i know we were drinking and we probably were gambling <laughs> and I know you and I know we were chatting. We were I know we were chatting about this. And I and I thought because you had to either take something to the board or I, I don't know how I don't know how it all we how it all worked, but I thought that was pretty interesting because all of us benefited from that. At least four of the five people on this call have benefited from what Terry started and from what you finished. Yeah. Yeah. And that and Terry you know, knows a lot about what that, those, those decisions because they were they yeah. were not technical. They were all political no. and no, they were I know. all like she said, people just don't want to change, you know. Yeah. And and, and but they would rather some... keep 49 legacy systems and go to one brand new shiny right, system. Right. Now they all realize it was the right decision, but man. Yeah. They've given up their turf. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was hell. But I thought it, that was well, to me, that was pretty interesting because that because that affected us for, for sure. Mm -hmm. And the ease of use, what you guys were able to accomplish at PERS, I don't know. I don't know if you fast forward to this day and age, if they would make that same decision. And I, and I'm not saying anything about any of the leadership. I like Marcy. I know Doug, I know Mike, and I know Stevenson, but I'm not sure if that decision would be as easy as I don't say the decision was easy, but, but after you guys got through it, I'm not even sure if it would have been on the table now, that kind of a decision. Well, and even I, don't, I can't really you know, go into details. I don't think people will take those kind of things forward. Yeah. They don't, that's yes. what I mean. I think it's different. It's <clears> like, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of like Dale. I never had any fear. And, you know, maybe that's ignorance. <laughs> and ignorance no, is that's, bliss. No, but I, I never, I was never afraid of getting fired. I always yep. figured I could land somewhere else. And so I always did what I thought right. And, you know, and, and, and I don't mean to play the, the sex card, but, you know, being a woman in the, in IT in the seventies yeah. and eighties was very, very difficult. And so oh, I yeah. had to learn to assert myself and make, be able to make decisions um, probably that were outside the realm of what others did. But today, what I see is people are, maybe it's because they don't feel comfortable in their positions or something, but they're afraid to take those big leaps. That my CalPERS, I it never scared me. And I, I was probably in more hot water during that thing than ever. And we got out of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and worked for solutions instead of running and hiding. And it yeah. ended up being great. But today, today you wouldn't have to do a big bang either. Today technology yeah. has evolved. So you could probably do that a little bit more in, in chunks or increments. But um, but I don't know. I I I've canceled bad projects because I think that's smarter than continuing yeah. forward right um and those yeah. are hard decisions but they they're not so i don't know they were the right business decision did you cancel so good pro I, did you cancel good projects i did 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, because if there were things that, you know, even if it was going well or something, if it wasn't supporting whatever the, the priorities were, you know, that's just yeah. taking away resources. I had to cancel a really good project at, um, at Department of Industrial Relations because the project was run through just one person. And she was she was a knowledgeable, you know, a deputy, but um, she didn't do any change management. And so when the project, when they finally implemented, it got totally rejected by the business people. And it was, it would have probably ended up the same thing, but she didn't follow the process of, of letting the business people be involved for the two and a half, three years that the development was going on. And so they rejected it, not because it was bad technology, but because they weren't involved. And, and, yep. and we had to, we had to, I had to support that decision to cancel and, and it was not the right thing to do, but you can't, you can't fight that battle. You know, there was, there was 800 people that, that were rejecting the technology and it was everybody in, in their, in their division of labor standards and enforcement. So, and which taught me a lesson, don't ever do a project without change management, you know, and look, and when Terry was doing this big transformational project i think joe you even had to have a ton of ocm out at a cdcr right to make all that stuff stick so hmm. so that's, yeah, that's think, the key is yeah. integrating I mean, ocm you know into your every project otherwise you will have a failure yeah yeah i mean i think um all of us paul you know and you too you know all of us had these big projects and multiple projects and portfolios and um we all had the good, bad, and ugly stories to, to tell. And, um, and we all made the tough choices. I mean, that's just part of being a, a leader and executive. And, and that's, you know, if your head is on, on the top of the org chart, then you've got to step up and take responsibility. And if heads are going to fall, yours should be the first one. I mean, you're, you're in charge of the, of the IT shop. So, you know, all of us probably got to a point maturity-wise where we weren't hesitant to make those decisions and inform our bosses of what needed to be. I and mean, if we lost our jobs, we lost our jobs. That's a seasoned, experienced type of person. I'll go back to what Terry said when she said she had to let somebody go. Those are the things that that probably kept me at, up at night. You know, dismissing, you know, one of my direct reports was probably the hardest thing I, I ever did. And the other thing was to... Um, we all gone through budget drills where all of a sudden they come in and say, okay, you're taking a 10% reduction and you don't have a 10% vacancy. And so now you're actually getting rid of actual positions and people in those positions. And now you're maybe compacting your organization where maybe you can't justify a, a DPM4 anymore or something. So those are things when you're impacting real people, real lives. And their future, I think, was, to me, is the toughest thing when you're, when you're, you know, the head person has to own those decisions. That's the toughest part of the job. Loving what I'm hearing here, folks. I mean, yeah. I, I'm going to do a little translation on what I heard. You all clearly see a gap in the current leadership footprint and who's in some of these positions. And what I'm hearing is maybe the instincts aren't really shining through like you would think that they need to in order to make those tough decisions that you have to make if you're in those roles. I think you have to either have the instincts there or you don't. And those instincts are what fuel you to do the right thing. Right. Well, Michael, I, I don't I, I don't know if I would I don't know if I would sum it up like that. Okay. I think the four of us right here would tell you we did a terrible job of mentoring. 
Yes. And yeah. we knew we knew this white tsunami was happening. We had in the earliest CIO academies, in the earliest, God, even in ITMA, and when we used to go to when we used to go to Napa, we would have speakers talk about the 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 gray tsunami. And this was 2003, 2004, 2001. I mean, I'm talking 20 years ago. And we knew it was coming. And for whatever reason, it took it. We never really focused on it. Yeah, we made some, and Joe was part of this. We made some tweaks to ITLA, you know, because we made it, we, we, we got different kind of people in to run it in terms of, you know, when you're actually testifying from the legislative body, instead of people that have never testified in front of the legislative body grilling you, we actually had people that testified in front of the legislative body grilling you. You know, so we try to make things more real, but I can tell you, we did a terrible job mentoring and we did a terrible job um, trying to, you know, it took us a while when we found the right person. Sometimes those people didn't want these jobs. And other times, when we found the right people, some of them went into the private sector, yeah. but we did a terrible job mentoring. I, yeah, you know, Paul, and, Paul and I, I'm going to disagree with you. Um, no, I mean, please maybe do. you did a, Maybe you did a terrible job mentoring. Um, <laughs> maybe I did. But, and I don't, you know, but I don't think Dell, I don't know. I can't speak for him, but I mean, I look back and people ask me what's your, you know, what, what gives you the most kind of joy of your, of your career. And it's it's the people underneath me that that have moved up into higher level positions. The you know Leanna Bailey Crimmins, the Andrea Romans, the Russ Nichols, Scott McDonald's. The yeah, I Richard hired Gilligan, them all. You know, Joe, all I know. I hired Joe. I hired them all. I agree with you. They're fantastic. Right, but, well, that's, I, but that's I'm talking about Terry and, and Dell and I and you being leaderships that groom these people for the next succession. Um, so I, I, I think yeah. all of us CIOs did it. I, well, I can't speak for them, but I'm sure we all did a good job grooming and succeeding the people so, underneath us. So I, I'm, I'm not looking at it just from a CIO perspective. I'm looking at it from an HR, the people that run HR, the people that do procurement, <laughs> the people that are the uh, part of the legislative, you know, that are, do our legislative analysis, the administrative side. Um, because this, the, the CIOs and the CTOs and, and the CISOs I think they have, they, they have, there's a lot of mentoring that has to go on with them. But what's even worse to me is the lack of procurement experience, the lack of contract management experience, the lack of HCM experience, the lack of people understanding the, the budget process, just the flipping budget process. And so to me, Joe, I get it. I, I agree. Cause you, you know, you had some really good people under you. You did a really good job. And I, you, and I'm joking w about me hiring them all, but I tried to Leanna, <laughs> Russ and Andrea, you know, they were fantastic. Scott McDonald's fantastic. But, but if you look at, if you look at, if you, if you transition to today, what's the real, the, the biggest problem that I have with state government isn't really in the IT world. It's more in the people that don't know how to get things through finance or through the PAL process or the procurement and contract people that don't know how to do those. And if, and I find that to be so damn frustrating. So maybe that's the part of mentorship yeah, that I'm thinking. I, of. I, I think what yeah. you're trying to say, Paul, is even though we may have shining examples of 
pe- yeah, people you guys do. personally mentored yeah. that as an institution, the state does a very lousy job at succession planning or a very lousy job at, at systemic, you know, mentoring, you know, or sy- yeah. systemic preparing, you know, the workforce for the future. And, and I will agree with that. Um, I will agree that the state of California does a very bad job at this. And, and, yeah. and there should be institutional processes in place that kind of force the issue. Like, you know, where's your content management system? Where's your process documentation? Where's all those things, you know, that, that eventually trickle down into learning management? We don't even have learning management in the state of California at any kind of decent level. And so, you know, what do we expect out of the masses, you know, in terms of their ability to, to understand what's really going on and, and, and where the secret sauce is, you know, they, yeah. there's no clue. It's, it's your only chances if you by happen to have a good mentor or good leader yeah. along the way. So, so I do have, I'm sorry, Terry, go ahead. I just, just to add on to Dale, I, in the, in the recent, you know, last six months to a year, I have had many conversations because people call me for advice on hiring, right? Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes they'll look, they'll have really good up and coming candidates in their organizations, but rather than groom them, they do an intergalactic search, right? And I'm like, why don't you take this person and get them a coach, help yeah. them be successful, right? Yeah. And they kind of look like, well, then that would mean they're not qualified. Instead of growing our people, there's a real reluctance to that. And it's like, I'm, I'm going to tell you that there, the grass isn't greener anywhere else. No, and if you can find somebody who, who understands your business and your organization and really, you know, give them a chance. And, and I don't see us doing that. Yeah. Well, well I look, when I look at you guys, when, when I look at you three, I could give you people that I know that you guys have mentored that have been very successful. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to ask Joe, I go, Joe, think of some other people. And Carlos did the same thing. But think of other people that have been CIOs or AIOs and think of those people, how well they did mentoring. And, and to follow it up, you, you did institutionalize it because you were part of that institutionalized thought process. You know, like, C, like at CHP, they have this structured way that they're going to hire people, train people, and develop people. You guys are probably very similar at Corrections. But the rest of us that are out there that have worked in, and you worked at, you worked at a thousand departments. Think about our SEO days, Joe. Right? I mean, I mean, you and I both had to bolt out of there quicker than we could possibly can, so we could get some pretty decent training hmm. and pretty decent mentoring. I mean, so I don't know. You know, I, I'm not disagreeing with with you guys. I'm not disagreeing, but it just. There's so much things. Another analogy that Mr. Cave brought up originally, which is, you know, what's your what's your retirement choice when you enter the Hall of Fame? There's also this thing in football or even in baseball where they they track leadership. They call it coaching trees. And everyone who worked for Bill Parcells, you know, you could see or or you you name it you you, you name the, coach, Walsh. You know, the the uh the bill walsh coaching tree yeah. and who's all spawned off and you could tell you know some coaching trees go out for for Never. decades and others <laughs> stop right away and, and there's there's an indicator there right there's an indicator that you know if it isn't a big tree there's not a lot of good leadership going on and 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 i think if you traced a lot of our coaching trees you would see some of that and, and some other coaching trees you wouldn't see as much and i think yeah. that that's a good indicator of 
of what's happening. And I bet you could even trace back to some recipes of, of what people did. I remember SEO when Dick Brothers was yeah. there and, and some other people. It was it was a it was a pretty good organization. I don't know if that coincides with your guys' experience, but I, no. I was impressed in those days. Um no, we had Dave Dawson. So yeah. it wasn't it well, wasn't at that same level. Yeah. There's not a big coaching team. Kathleen O'Connor, <laughs> the, the controller. That was yeah. She was Brian terrible. Gilgrass and George uh, yeah. Papalopoulos or whatever. I mean, those were good, good, George, solid leaders. Terry good, George is George Terry. Yeah, and, and Charlene. Then, you know, I remember Liam and you coming out of there. So it couldn't have been that bad. I mean, maybe that was Joe came after, out there, but. Joe came out. I came out. Yeah. I I went to yeah. the first apprenticeship programs that yes, they had. And, and that, no was, that was groundbreaking stuff. That, that used was. to be the place to work, right in yeah. IT. And, and I thought Dick Brothers was awesome. He was way up there with yeah. like Will Bush and people. When yeah, you work Dick, for a Dick was something. When you work for a constitutional office, it's totally different. Especially yeah. you know if they just got elected yeah. or. And so when I was there, you know, there was just a lot of political agendas being pushed by the controller and, you know, the pressure came yeah. all the way down. And so unfortunately, sometimes when your boss is above you or under pressure, they yeah. don't necessarily react yeah. the best way towards you. And it's not about you. It's just them, you know, dealing with their, their issue. But, you know, I, I think the um, I want to go back to something Terry was saying, too, is, you know, is taking chances on these people and allowing them to succeed, even though they're gonna have some failures, putting the right structure in place, um, get the right coaching and mentoring and support system. Um, I call it coming out at the baptism of the fire, Stu standing, yep. and now you have a, a seasoned you know, person in there. Um, the state can always do better. I mean, it's constant yeah. improvement. So five years from now, we'll be saying, hey, they could do a better job on X, Y, and Z. That's our job is to continue to, to push forward and make improvements. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, I agree with Dale, you know, there are certain managers who have done a very good job in, in creating their succession tree and people have moved on. But like Terry said, I did the same thing. I hired people that had more talent than me. I hired people that were smarter than me. All of them, probably most of them moved up to higher positions than me. And you got to check yeah. your ego at the door and say, okay, I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, maybe they're sitting at the a council meeting doing the presentation because they're better at doing the darn presentation than you are, even though they yeah. report to you. So if you're willing to look at all your assets and who has the strengths and check your ego at the door, you can have a great management team. And if those people move up, that's your darn job is to help them move up. Well, the state benefit. And you should feel proud of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you right. should. You should. Wow, Paul, you really know how to to ask the, the loaded question. And, well, and no, that was not, in. that was really not the loaded question. That was kind of a, really? that was kind of layup <laughs> drill for these guys. Well, okay. No, you, you started off saying that we all sucked at uh, successful. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I hey, saw, hey, I saw Joe, Joe, just get Joe, all comfortable yeah, in a Joe, chair. Like, well, wait a minute, Joe, <laughs> we, we, as the state of California suck at doing succession planning. That's a different we, statement than what you state what you what you well, said initially. Well, the the yeah, you're right, you're right. So I yeah, apologize for it. that it's confusion. Okay, Paul. No, I own it. Okay. I own it. I got it. I got you. But we but but we suck. We we as the state of California suck, and it's sad because um, we got a the things we do are important, and they're important for the forty million of us, and you know, I don't know, man. Less about five hundred thousand uh, from a recent article. Yeah, 
if, yeah, if but all our... hope is not lost, my esteemed Hall of Fame panels, if all hope is not lost, what does hope look like for each of you in terms of turning this mentoring problem that y'all are alluding to around? Because I like what Dale said about the coaching tree. I, I, I'm a sports buff myself. I, I definitely know what you're talking about. So what does it look like? I mean, where do you don't you have you don't have enough people that stay long enough. And we're going out cherry picking the technology companies that are going to bring people in at high levels that probably won't stay very long. And right. you can't create you can't create synergy. You can't create relationships. You can't create those partnerships and you can't create an organization if people aren't there for a while. And by cherry picking some of the best technology people in the world from our Silicon Valley and the job losses, you know, we're going to get good people, very good people, but at what price and what gets forfeited in two years when the economy goes back up and they're able to make $400,000 working for a, for a company versus 170,000 working for us. That's that. Right. Well, and that's Paul, my most perspective. Yeah, most of them aren't going to stay long anyway because they can't they can't get comfortable with the pace of government, right? <laughs> and and so they end up going back out. And so then you've just instead of bringing somebody else up in the public sector family, right? You've kind of brought in a transplant who then goes back out. So I don't know. You know, I continue to mentor people um, after I retired, and you know, and and I'm I'm proud of the people who really succeeded that worked for me. And I continue to encourage those who want to get up. And, it, you know, it just takes time and effort and, and a willingness to, to help folks. But yeah. Well, I, I think some of the most fun I had was when Joe and I were mentoring at CalPERS. That was a lot of fun for both of us. You know, we brought in Sue Johnsrud and Joe Munzo and some of these other people just for a different conversation. So they just weren't listening to us always. But I had a, Joe and I had a lot of fun. I mean, that was that yeah. was a great deal of fun for us. Yeah, that's when Le Leanna Bailey Crimmins was the CIO and um, they brought Paul and I in to mentor eight of their um, middle level managers um, for about a year. And um, most of those people, I'm pretty sure most of those people, I can at least think of four of them and you and who moved up to AIOs, CIOs, ISO positions. And not yeah. saying that what Paul and I did contribute to that but um these people think, wanted to be mentored i'm sure it did i'm sure yeah. it did. i think i think they all did i think they all actually promoted yeah and they i think to, they, yeah, they wanted to they yeah. wanted to they're open and it was done in a very confidential setting where paul and i would have our four people and we would have private conversations that stayed with us so they really truly had a ex-cio assigned to them where they really truly you know say whatever's on their mind, knowing it wasn't going to get to their bosses. Yeah. Um, and so that, right. it's a great program. It really was a great yeah. program. You know, I used to do a lot of that when I was at PERS and brought in leadership teams to work with the, with the, um, my future leaders. Right. One of the things that we did was I brought in a Lawrence, Lauren Suter and Diane just to put together a mm -hmm. budget panel for to teach my folks how to write BCPs. You know, I said, if you can't sell a budget request, you're never going to be successful, right? Yeah. And we had the Al Lee and Lauren Suter and all these crusty old guys oh, on this God, budget panel. Oh, God, great people. You know, great I mean, people, though. I had, I, had a, I had a couple of people 
leave in tears. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which I laugh now because it's like, but they these guys, I like this is reality. This is what's yeah. going to happen to you. So this it, is helping you get stronger, yeah. right? Can I, you no, know, so and then I would tell those guys back off a little bit, right? No, Terry, <laughs> Terry, we would Joe and I, Joe and I, when we were the executive sponsors over ALF for a couple for about three years, we would we brought in people that had that experience, the Lauren Suter types of the world, yeah. right? And when the Itla, poor Itla kids <laughs> went up and tried to argue whatever their position is, these guys <laughs> ate them up. And oh. Joe and I yeah. are in the back, yeah. Joe and I are in the back doing knuckles, high five saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, make them cry. Go get them, go get them. It was, it was fun. So, but you know, it's, but it's, that's how you prepare them for really exactly. what's going to happen. Yep. Yeah. Right. So and Terry, you got to get, you, you got to get tough skin. Yeah. Terry, when you have corrections and they did the internal BCP review process, did Jim um, Gomez? When, Jim when Gomez. I was there, oh man, was Jim. There, oh, wow. yeah. When I was there, you presented your BCP with the secretary and directors. And if, if, the th if it was a thumbs down, they actually had a shredder and they would shred your BCP. <laughs> well, you know, when, okay, so when I was there and Jim Gomez, I don't know if you all had the pleasure of working with him, I, but he had working. like a photographic memory. Yes. And the first BCP um, reviews I went in with him, I mean, he started saying, and it, you know, like he'd go back six years and say, you asked for two software specialists. Where are those now? And I'd be like, what? So when, I, when I'd prep every year for BCP hearings with him, I had a file that would go back about 10 years, you know, so I could pull the, Damn. I'd review those things because he'd pull things out of the woodwork. It was just brutal. Yeah, but those but he old, taught me so much yeah. about the budget process and how mm -hmm. to prep and how to sell your case. Terry, those, old, those, those peeps, the suitors, Jim Gomez, Munzo, they're all, they're all good yes. friends. You know all yep. of them, and they because Jim Jim was Joe's MC at his at his retirement. Mm -hmm. So those guys, the, but those that's what that's what I'm talking about. Who are those guys today in state government that can help us through what we had to go through? So we became whatever we became. Who are those people? Because I don't know. I don't know if those people exist. Right. That's. I agree. Yeah. That's a I agree. Same as like think about a Russ Bohard and just I mean there's just yeah. all the the old the old guys who really really knew how to make government run and run well. Jerry Majors, I love Jerry, Jerry Majors. Majors. You know, Kalodney yep. and his you know before before we had any Tyrude, all that crap. You know what he used to do, what he did. I mean, yeah. it it was it was. Um, but who are those people now? that could get the state through whatever they're going to get through to become better because think, they helped us out. I don't know. Yeah. Lauren and Lauren and Diane and I talked about that recently and Will Bush and Elaine Bush, and we were all out to dinner yeah. and, you know, and we just kind of scratched our heads because I, so I don't see that today. Is that Diane Cummings? Diane Just. Oh, Diane Just. Okay. Lauren's wife. Lauren's wife. Okay. We're coming to an agreement that, we need these people because you can have all the transparency in the world in terms of budget change proposals out there on the Department of Finance website, not just the ones that are approved, but have a gander at the ones that didn't make the cut, right? But you still need people, mentors, to guide people that 
have to fall on that sword. You have to go make your case for bodies, for money, you know, and you have to have those relationships to your point about relationships, Paul, with the folks at DOF, you know, not every department has the luxury of being right across the street from the Capitol or right across the street from the Department of Finance. But, you know, the the, the guard people are the, the analysts, right? Those are the people that you need to have relationships with because they're going to take your case forward to the people that are actually going to say, yeah, or no. So this is a well, great, great conversation. You know, and I know that I know we're way over our time, um, but that's that's what I see as the biggest issue, Mike. Yeah, I see those types of people that we benefited that Joe, Terry, Dale and I benefited from that Carlos benefited from that Anna Brandon benefited that all of us people benefited from the Jerry Majors, the Bohards, the Kolodnys, Dick Brothers, all of them. We benefited so greatly from them. Um, Alderan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. All of all of them, and we and we and Michael, we benefited a lot from them. And I'm not sure if we were the same people to the people that looked to us like we looked to them. And I don't know if there's anybody today that is in that position that could truly help people understand how government operates, works, how it functions. <clears throat> And how it should be. So Paul, Paul, I'll take a, a little different spin on that. And, and and what came to my mind was that corrections, you know, or CHP, they retire at 50 years of age, you know, 90% of their paycheck. And they're at their they're at their peak of their career. You know, they had the institute institutional knowledge, they're successful. The same thing with, you know, we're having a lunch in about two weeks now with 25 of ex-CIOs that retired from the state that are still alive and still <laughs> kicking and still and still working and still working. And yeah. so maybe the issue is isn't so much that the people isn't there. there. What happens is is when you retire, maybe the gap is is that they're not leveraging the people that are retiring for the three or five years after they retire to make that orderly transition and hand the baton to the next people yeah. that are retiring in the next three to five years. And so there's that institu okay. institutional knowledge that's out there that could be leveraged to fill the gap that you're talking about. And that's just a program they don't have in place. All of us go out and run our own businesses, but the state isn't coming in and taking the 20 yeah. of us that are having lunch and saying, oh my God, look at the knowledge that is there and the success and lessons learned. How could we tap into that to, to raise the tide of the boats for everybody with a more effective IT executive team. That's the and gap. Yet, and yeah. yet, Joe, think about this. Um, you and um, you and I and um, Dale, we all make we all make a living off of the private sector who hires us to help them understand government yeah. and relationships and all of that, right? Yeah. So it's like, it seems like the state should take advantage of that same thing. Right. And I agree. Terry, you had the benefit of uh, going to George Akiyama's retirement. But the one thing that stood out is, you know, the, the agency secretary and the department, you know, chief deputy director both said that, you know, George would come by my office, you know, every other week. Mm -hmm. And and we would talk, you know, and I thought that was an indicator that George had a recipe that a lot of probably other CIOs are not following. And that is, you know, 
do you have regular rounds with your with your business right. leaders you know and and if you don't that's probably why you suck at it you know because you should be visiting those business leaders on a very regular basis and i think you know paul i've heard you preach a million times at itla that you know relationships matter but they i think do. you probably need to say and oh by the way if you're not visiting your chief deputy and your agency secretary once every two weeks then you're not getting it you know yeah. i mean that's what i think this younger crowd needs is more than just a, a hint but like a like a step-by-step -step <laughs> instruction it, it, man. like remedial the relationship building right. Yeah. It's funny. We are having that. We are having that old geezer lunch. Yep. But, but two hours before that, Carlos, Joe, and I are on a panel with Itla, and it's we told them we don't. Nothing's off the table. Ask anything. Um. So it's going to be a lot of fun talking to the to to these Itla peeps. But I agree with you guys, man. There is a. Um, I think sometimes, Joe, to your point. They're scared to ask us after we retired yep. to sit up and talk to them yep. and to help them. Because, Why? Terry, I, I get a lot more calls. I used to get a lot more calls from the governor's office, especially when it was Governor Brown's office, about should we put this person in this position? What do you think of this person? Um, more than, you know, more than when I was the undersecretary. And it was weird because they actually, Governor Brown's people actually utilized us older people that retired because they saw the value in it. I'm not right. sure that people see the value in what we offer. Now, personally, you uh, and Michael, uh, you're, you're, I want you to edit this part. Actually, I want you to, I want you to stop this right tape right now because we're, we're done taping. The reality okay. is... Well, he has it. to do some kind of official sign off first, Paul. Well, just yeah. sign it off. Just sign it off. Just just cut it for a second. <laughs> okay. We, uh, let me pause. He can all. All right. So we see land. We're going to be docking the boat soon, but there is something that I, I really want to touch base with, with the panel here. It's this thing called the pandemic. And last time we sailed with these fine folks. Dale, you brought up a very powerful word that really stuck with me personally and even professionally. You described the pandemic as sequestration. And I think uh, we're all starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel come out of this thing. But what damage has done or been done as far as everything that government endured with this and uh, what do you see as uh, things to watch out for now that there's not really going to be COVID funding propping up the delivery of solutions and people that are now, in my opinion, going to be accountable minus those funds for showing organizations that they can lead them? What do you see as now that we're turning the corner as the opportunities and uh, what we still need to fix as we try to get back to some semblance of a normalcy. Tough question. <laughs> well, I, I, I thinking about this, I, I think the true test of your ability is to, you know, anybody should be able to be successful in good times, right? When there's a lot of money. So the true test of your abilities is to be able to do good things or great things with less, 
right? And that's where that, that's what's the challenge and the and the the really fun part of being a leader, right? So I, I don't know. I, I I see the state already. You know, the state had to on a on a turn on a dime and implement a lot of new things or new thinking um, to address the, the pandemic, right? Especially like the teleworking. And we did amazing things in a very short time, things that would have, take, have taken decades to try and get people to even talk about. But I start to see us now, that innovation and that drive to do better starting to wane. Mm-hmm. And we starting to go back into comfortable ways. And, I, and that's a fear I have that the state will lose some of that momentum. I would I would agree 100% with Terry. Um, the pandemic created this huge um, um, opportunity, you know, right in your face that that departments truly had not automated as much as they had. They had not gone to the cloud as much as they really thought they had. They still had a lot of disparate on, um, paper type of manual processes. They hadn't digitalized as much as they thought, um, and they really hadn't addressed their, you know, business continuity and disaster recovery. So all the things came exposed, and so here's this great opportunity now where the state has a chance to address these things and fix them over time. The lost opportunity would be exactly what Terry said: they don't. You know, we're in the year three; things are starting to go back to normal. Um, maybe some of the funding is drying up a little bit and they're going to go back to doing business as, as normal and wait till the next catastrophe hits and then address it, which is what the state typically does. You know, you know, they, they, they find the money and they find the resources when there's a catastrophe, but they don't necessarily get ahead of it and prevent that from really happening. And the state will always swing throughout our careers. There was a pendulum swinging where we had surplus and money and hiring, and then the pendulum would swing, and you know we'd have to you know reduce budgets and let go of people. Um, but this is different. This is where the state truly had a chance to move forward and really modernize and digitalize. And if they don't take advantage and continue the momentum, what a really lost opportunity and tragedy. I agree. While we were in sequestration mode and pandemic mode where offices were closed and the only way to do business with the citizenry was via, you know, applications that technically don't really exist or they exist in very, you know, fits and starts, you know, at least it, it, it forced these reticent business people to, you know, force them to realize that they had to start thinking of better ways to deliver services and that a DMV counter or an EDD counter or a county welfare, county child support counter is not the only way you're going to do business anymore. You got to put it all online and it has to be elegant. You know, it can't be 180 different websites. You know, the, the citizens want it all uniform. And I think that's still where everybody is missing the boat. They, they're, they're putting all their services out. Um, you know, on a, on a browser, on a, on a website, maybe even on an iPhone or, or Google kind of device, but um, they're not thinking enterprise yet. And so even if they put all these services out, the citizens are still going to think we're a bunch of idiots because it doesn't, it's not coherent. It's not Amazon. It's, yeah. it's you know, every restaurant and, and business in the world and, and nothing glues it all together. You know, I'm going to take a little bit of what they all, what Terry, Joe, and Dale said, because this is an opportunity for us to get a lot better. And I thought, I thought COVID, 
it got it got rid of pal process really and i love that because i hate the pal <laughs> process um it had us it had us looking at things much different the thinking was the cios i really liked what amy was able to do i really liked what the agency secretaries were able i really liked how government was operating i really liked the speed by which we were going going to business i really liked how we thought about technology versus how we thought about budgeting for technology. And I always thought that that was my, that was my biggest concern or my biggest problem. We always thought about how to budget for this versus what does technology look like and then figuring out a way to fund it later. And I thought COVID did that. COVID said, what is it going to take to do? And it, look at, you know, Terry knows this because sales, um, Accenture and Salesforce did a shitload of business during COVID. And it was not like they were going out and doing regular stuff. They're saying, do you guys have this? And three vendors, and we would come in with Accenture, and we would win, we would win whatever it was. And we had six weeks to get something up. And damn it, sometimes it took us seven weeks, sometimes it took us five weeks, but we got it done. And then we and figured we out, okay. those contracts around the clock. Yeah, oh, we I, I executed remember. contracts yes. in record speed. We did procurements yeah. in record speed. And now and it's we all were, back to yeah, six we were, months to do an RFO off CMAS. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, those, those vendor, the vendor conversations were so much different. And, and mm -hmm. there was a fundraiser for Governor, for Governor Newsom. Um, I don't know why there was a fundraiser, maybe for the presidential run, because, you know, I mean, it, this was two, two weeks before the general election for him to be a governor, and he was going to win by 90 points anyway, so it didn't matter. But the, the vendors that were there told them, why are you, because he, he asked, and these were all technology vendors, he asked some really good questions about, you know, what can we do better? And the vendors all said, why are you going back to, to, to pre-COVID times? Yeah. Why don't you stick with what was working for us? Yeah. The PAL process doesn't work. You're, you know, we, if you help us manage this, we'll do it. And the second part of this is there's still, Joe, that lack of vendor the, the relationships that the people today have with the, they don't trust the vendors and they don't think the vendors are bringing them solutions. And all through COVID, that's all the vendors did was to work with the state and brought really good solutions. And I'm scared, Terry, you're right. I'm scared that that's going to go down the toilet and we're going to have these RFPs that are going to take 20 years to get done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, we have touched on solid gold here and I, i'm just so thrilled that we're hitting all the things that need to be said <laughs> in this moment coming out of a pandemic people are worried i i hear what you all are saying why go back when that model just didn't work you saw what was delivered in times of panic uncertainty sequestration uh, you saw government grow up quickly and deliver quickly, and everybody got used to that. And I think to, to go backwards, I think that's a, a, a misstep. Let me leave you with one thing, though. I was at the CIO Academy this past uh, week, right? And a great turnout, by the way. A lot of people there interacting. It was cool. One of the hottest topics as I made the rounds, worked the room, to your point, Paul, was artificial intelligence, AI, chat GPT. 
the thing that Google's coming out with too. Uh, and what I heard was it's going to revolutionize the way we do business. Well, think about some of the things you could point that kind of technology at and how that links with a vendor. And RFP goes out, Terry. You know, some people don't know how to read RFPs. And then when they respond, they're surprised that, oh, crap, we weren't competitive at all. Well, okay. This technology has come so far to where you could almost shove that into it and get the story, the cliff notes of what you need to do to be successful winning. It's kind of scary. Statements of qualifications for hiring. Oh, my God. Think about that going to make screening even tougher because somebody could pump something like that uh their resume into that write me a soq for this job announcement and the hiring manager they're not going to know based on what you read in the soq which was traditionally a pretty good screening tool if the person is as good when you interview them as they sound on paper in that soq response kind of scary stuff you know, so I see AI as something that's going to be weaponized. I don't know if it's for good or for nefarious intent, but I just wanted to leave you all with that thought nugget uh, while we dock the boat and I let you all off this vessel of mine. But uh, any thoughts on that? Are you all so close to real retirement that you just don't give a shit? <laughs> well, I think AI is is a, a tremendous opportunity for government. And I think you got to combine it with, you know, some robotics and some machine learning and, 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 a, and a bunch of analytics. But together, that whole intelligent stack of, of new ways of doing business could, could be a huge boon for the state of California and a huge boon for IT. But you, you got to have the knowledge of what's really at play there and you got to have some critical thinking skills because if you let it do its own thing you're gonna you're gonna have huge regrets so you got you got to approach it with a a little bit of uh, caution yeah i agree and and that's why they have probation period michael (laughs) (laughs) you might be able to bs your way into it and get fake documents and do everything else but at some point you you got to perform and do the job yeah and the manager yep. yeah the plus the ai doesn't know your your experience and so they might write this generic thing of what you know everybody could generate but how does that relate back in in, in your interview you got to force them to relate it back to their actual experience what events you know did they they do and, and no ai could come up with that because they don't know all of our life stories no no and the other, the other thing too is and i don't know if it'd be relevant to this but i mean what they're saying with the pandemic and everything else and social media that the most depressed group are the younger group right now because they're not interacting, they're not socializing live with people. And so, you know, the whole thing goes back to what we started this whole conversation. It's all about the relationships and yeah. forming the relationships. And so you can't hide behind a computer. Right. Well, fabulous, fabulous conversation. Terry, Joe. Oh my God, this was amazing. I am just blown away with the knowledge that you all put on full display on this fairly long voyage into deep waters. <laughs> but I hope you all had as much fun as I did sailing and talking about the glory days. I loved your Hall of Fame speeches. And uh, I think you all each picked the right departments. And thank you for sharing your your wisdom with uh, 
our listeners here today. I just think that uh, you all hit the nail on the head on so many different topics and levels. And I, I think what you all represent right now is the, the single source of truth that we need to figure out how to bottle up and pass to the next generation of leaders who are out there. It's just, can you collect enough of them to impart this wisdom on and get it to stick and give them the tools and the knowledge that they need to execute? This was fantastic. I look forward to editing this and putting it out there for consumption. No edits. No edits. Well, I don't know. Well, there's a couple words that probably could be beeped or something. Yeah, a little bit. Well, you know, hey. Terry has Terry just has to quit cussing. I think that's the key. <laughs> I think we would do. Paul needs, to, Paul needs to know how to work his camera. But hey, Mike. Oh, about Jesus. No kidding. <laughs> you, know, you know what I, so this is how shitty I am with details. Joe, I, I, I figured out just a minute ago that you and I are in the same place in San Francisco. When I had my um, when I had my screenshot, so I should have just come over and used your your phone. Yeah, so going back to the hilltop high above the Marin County. Uh... Yep. Yeah. Yep. But Michael, going back to the Hall of Fame or whatever you want to call it, I mean, I mean, we're all honored to be you know part of that or consider that. But I can tell you, none of us would want a statue of ourselves. <laughs> no. And you know, you know why, Michael? Why is that? Because pigeons would come visit us more than <laughs> so so Michael, very, very quickly. Joe, Joe and I and Dale are doing one of the ITLAs, and this was probably ITLA 2013. And Dale is standing right by me, and it's and it's I, I had just spoke a little bit, then it's Joe's turn to speak. So Joe's talking, and Joe goes. CIOs and leaders come in all shapes and forms. Look at Paul and Dale. And I'm standing right next to Dale. And I'm up to fucking Dale's waistline. And that was one of the funniest lines I could ever remember. That's perfect. That Joe actually said. But that was a funny damn line, man. And I, re I remember that and I thought, ah, I can't get him back, damn it, because I, I already spoke. But it was hilarious. Well, but you have to that's perfect. look at man. It, you guys, we know this because we're all friends with each other. Yeah. And it's for for the state to be successful going forward, all of these same people need to be friends with each other. Because if they're not friends with each other, it be it is long and it's sad. Mm -hmm. And the journey is not as fun if you don't have friends to share it with you. That's for sure. Oh man, right. Joe, Joe, and there was teamwork too that we did, you know, and 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 we leveraged each other and 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 took advantage of each other and and in positive ways, and 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 that's yeah. that needs to continue to happen. Oh, do you guys? I know our last. I know we we shut this damn thing off a while ago, but hey, I don't think they. I don't think the people. You know, we worked hard and we played hard and we did it together, and I don't think that people today do that. And I think they're really missing out. Well, I agree. I yeah. agree with you, Paul. I think the, I mean, again, coming out of the pandemic, the worst thing you can do is assume that we need to go back to the way things were. I think what we need to do as a community, a tech community, with friendships, 
you know, different layers of friendships is form a new normal, you know, change the status quo, uh, reinvent how we reach these people. I think it's great that you all are going to be speaking to this, this next ITLA class. The, the funniest thing that after I graduated from ITLA that I saw was that you see the new people coming in, they have no idea that they're going to get their asses handed to them in the executive presentations, <laughs> you know, and they have this, oh, I don't need this person coming in to talk to me kind of mindset about them. And it's just like, you know what, check your ego at the door and be grateful, A, grateful, and B, mindful that people with such knowledge, what did you say, Paul, 130-something years worth of collective knowledge are taking time out of their busy schedules where you could be doing something like really gearing up for retirement, but you all have been choosing to give back and just be thankful that they're doing that because they could all make different choices. That's how I looked at it. So when I see people saying, eh, I don't need this, this, and that. Yeah, you do. You know, because you get out what you put in and you all are putting in a lot of time over the years since you've retired continuously. I certainly appreciate it. Appreciate you coming aboard, breaking bread with me. Joe, with the, the, the timely jokes, I think last time you said something crazy about a U-Haul and a hearse. <laughs> <laughs> all right. well thank you all uh no need to leave the listeners with words of wisdom i think uh from start to finish on this you all have brought the, the energy the fire the passion the truth i appreciate that captain caveman out see you guys later <laughs>